chapter 15, we find Abram with some concerns, with some concerns. Now, his first concern was this, his safety. Look what it says in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, why would God need to tell Abram to not fear? Why? Because he was afraid, right? He was afraid. Uh, there wasn't a trick question. He was afraid. And, and Abram was living in a land surrounded by people who were not worshipers of the one true God. He had just uh, fought a great battle to, uh, to win back the freedom of his nephew Lot and his family. And God used Abram's courage in a mighty, mighty way. But he was surrounded by enemies. And so he was concerned about his safety. If something happened to him then this, this great promise that God made would be null and void, right? He could do nothing through Abram if Abram were dead. The second thing that Abram was concerned about was his heir. Up to this point, he had no descendant. Look what it says in chapter 15, verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. So he's saying, I don't have a son yet. Now we've got this uh, household servant, Eliezer. Maybe he's the heir, and, and, but I don't see a son. And so I don't see how this promise is going to come to fruition if, if Sarah and I do not have a son. So he was concerned about his heir. But he was also concerned about the promise of land that, that God had made. Look what it says in verse 7. Verse 7. He said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So you're saying you're giving me land. How do I know it's my land? Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, God, but there are other people living here. So how how can this land be my land? So God promised, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And Abram said, am I going to be able to survive with all these people surrounding me, these pagan nations surrounding me? God said, Abram, I'm going to give you a son. And Abram says, God, I don't see a son yet. And he said, Abram, I'm going to give you land. And Abram said, how am I going to possess the land? And so he's having these these doubts. He's wavering in doubt as he's reflecting on the tremendous promises that God has made. But we see Abraham, in, or Abram, hence not called Abraham yet, but Abram, in this passage, we see him as he's, as he's wavering in doubt. We see him exemplify great faith and respond to God, renewing those promises, reminding him of those promises. So he exemplifies great faith in the midst of his doubts. And so we learn some things about the nature of faith. Now, this chapter is very important when it comes to Christian doctrine. Christian theology, things that we believe. A lot, of, a lot of people say, well, if doctrine, theology, that stuff's boring. Well, listen, that's what our, our faith is built upon, the, the propositional truths of the Word of God. And so doctrine and theology is of utmost importance. Uh, importance. I heard one uh, guy say one time, I don't want to talk about all that doctrine. I don't want to talk about all that theology. I just want to talk about Jesus. And my response will be, well, who do you think Jesus is? Well, he's the Son of God. That's a doctrinal statement, right? Uh, He's uh, fully human and fully divine. You just espoused doctrine. He 
left heaven and was born of the Virgin Mary. You know what that is? That's a theological, doctrinal statement. So everything we believe about Jesus, which we have to believe to be saved, we have to place our faith in Christ to be saved, is doctrine. And chapter 15 reminds us of some doctrinal realities. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that New Testament authors thought so much of this passage, this chapter that we're reading tonight, that they used Abraham as an illustration of the doctrines they were teaching. So I want to just lift from our passage and from other places in the Bible tonight three, three realities, three truths, if you will, about faith in this passage, all right? Because this is very, very important. Number one, faith alone saves. Faith alone saves. Now look what it says in verse 3. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven, I love this passage, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he, watch this, believed the Lord... And he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abram, as righteousness. So he believed the Lord and God credited to his spiritual account righteousness. In other words, his faith put him in a right position with God. And so why was Abraham righteous before God? Because he placed his faith in God's promises. And God gave him that righteousness, that right standing as a free gift. Now, when it says there that he believed God. The word there, the Hebrew word belief, means to lean your whole weight upon. You placed your faith in the chair you're sitting in right now, right? Without a, a second thought, probably, you leaned your entire weight onto that chair, trusting that it would hold you. And that's the idea of the word faith. It, it means to put all of your eggs in one basket. And what Abraham is doing here is he's putting all of his eggs into the basket of the promises of God. He's saying, God, if you're saying it, I believe it. I believe what you are saying. And his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And guess what? What happened here with Abram, the way that Abram is saved in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, is the way that anyone who's ever been saved has been saved. It's the way that you were saved, if you're saved, by faith. It's the way that people were saved in the Old Testament before the cross, by faith. It's the way people were saved after the cross, by faith. Anyone that's ever been saved in human history has been saved by faith and faith alone. You ever wondered how Old Testament folks got saved? Tells you right there. Abraham, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him. God gave to him a righteous position, a, a right standing. And so the Bible is clear and consistent that we are justified by faith alone, not by any merit in and of ourselves. Now you say, wait. Abram believed God and his promises about redemption, his promises about building a nation and blessing the 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 peoples of the earth through this nation he was going to build. But this was before Jesus died on the cross. This is before Jesus rose from the dead. How could it be saved by faith if Jesus hasn't come and completed the transaction of 
of, of redemption. I mean, how, how could that be? Well, Abraham's faith and all the Old Testament saints who were saved were saved by faith in what God was going to do. They were, you might say, looking forward to the cross. Jesus came, born of the Virgin Mary, died on the cross, rose from the dead. That happened in human history about 2,000 years ago. And since then, everyone that's been saved has been saved by placing their faith in what happened in the past. And so some were saved on this side of the cross by looking forward to what God was going to do. And the rest are saved on this side of the cross, looking back at what God did, the finished work of Christ. But all whether before the cross or after the cross, have been saved by faith. You got that? Say, wait, I thought it was the sacrificial system. They were, you know, killing animals. They were killing bulls and goats and calves. I thought thought it was, that's how they were saved. No, no, no. The sacrificial system simply um, foreshadowed the cross. It pointed to what God was going to do to provide salvation. Hebrews 10 is clear. The blood of bulls and goats and calves cannot make you perfect, can't save you. They're, they're symbols, they're types. They, they foreshadowed the cross. And by, by them entering into the sacrificial system, they're saying, God, we believe you're going to save. We believe you're going to one day send the ultimate sacrifice. And we believe, we place our faith in you. And that faith saved people before the cross. And now... 2,000 years later, when we say, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you're my only hope. I'm going to lean all my weight upon you when it comes to eternity. That faith saves. But it's been the same all through human history. The Bible is clear and consistent that we are justified by faith alone, not by any merit in and of our Selves. Now let me show you some verses on this, because I told you some New Testament writers used Abraham as an illustration of saving faith. Turn with me to Romans chapter 4, very important passage, Romans chapter 4. We'll talk a lot about Romans 4 tonight. Let's start in verse 13, Romans chapter 4, verse 13. This chapter is about saving faith, and... Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to give us an illustration of what saving faith looks like. And guess who he uses? Good old Abram. He calls him Abraham here. He says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, he's making the argument that keeping the tenets of the law doesn't save you, only faith saves you. Because he's saying Abraham was saved, but Abraham lived before the law. So, that, that's how a person is saved. And look what he says. He says, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on what? Faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. All right, this comes to that verse. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith. We considered his 
own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. There's faith. Fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. That is why his faith was, verse 6 of Genesis 15, counted to him as righteousness. Paul is saying, Abram was saved by placing his faith in the Lord's promise. That faith was credited to him as righteousness. It's the same way today. If we're saved, we are descendants of Abraham. We have placed our faith in the work of, of uh, saving work of God the same way that Abram did. And so he uses that passage, Genesis 15, 6, as an illustration of saving faith. Turn to Galatians chapter 3. We'll show you another example of this. Galatians chapter 3. Another Pauline epistle. Look what it says in verse 3. Galatians 3, verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was, if it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice there, he uses the phrase, it was counted to him as righteousness. He quotes from Genesis chapter 15, and the point is clear. Here's what was happening in the churches in Galatia. Uh, Folks would hear a preacher preach the gospel, and they say, Okay, we believe in Jesus, we want to follow Jesus And then a Judaizer would come along behind the gospel preacher and say, okay, I know that you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior and placed your faith in him, but if you really want to be right with God, you also have got to be circumcised and you've got to keep the Sabbath regulations and the festivals and and you've got to do all the, the Jewish things too if you want to be saved. Truly saved, completely saved, really saved. It's, it's faith in Jesus, yeah, that's fine, but it's faith in Jesus plus other things that saves you. And so Paul heard this was going on, and Paul writes this fierce letter. In chapter 1, he calls this idea that, that they were teaching a false gospel. So if anyone preaches a false gospel, let him be a curse. And he says to them in chapter 3, that's not how Abraham was saved. He was saved by faith in the promises of God, the saving promises of God. And so you you began by faith, but now you think you're going to work to to keep yourself in a right standing before God. He's saying you are only saved by faith. Only faith gives you a righteous position before a holy God. And so again, Paul uses Genesis 15, 6 as an example of saving faith. So again, the Bible is clear and consistent that we are justified by faith alone, not by any merit in and of ourselves. If you are in this room tonight and you are saved, your sins have been forgiven, you have a relationship with God, you're, you're going to heaven when you die, if you're saved, it's not because you're good. Did you hear me? 
It's not because you're good. It's not because you're Baptist. It's not because you're a church member. It's not because you tithe. It's not because you, you, you know, take care of your family. It's not because your, your good kind of outweighs your bad. If you're saved, you're only saved because you placed your faith in the finished work of Christ. You believe what God said about Jesus being your only hope. You place your faith in Christ and Christ alone. And that faith makes you right before God. That faith saves you. That faith is the way that you received the gift of eternal life. You didn't earn it. You received it as a gift. And Paul makes this abundantly clear in Ephesians. Turn to the next book, Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 8. Famous passage. For by grace... You have been saved through what? So grace is unmerited favor. It's a gift. You've been saved by this gift that God's given you, and that gift was received by you by faith. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not, he's going to be clear here, this is not of your own own doing. You're not saved because you're good. Look what he says. It is the gift of God. Everybody got that? Salvation is the gift of God, a gift of grace. And even more clear, verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Now you think about the, the, the cults in our society today. You think about the world religions which are prevalent in our nation and, and all over the world. They are all based upon works. If I can just do the right stuff, I'll somehow climb this ladder toward God. And if I do all the right things, if I, if, I, if, if I keep all the right tenets of my belief system, then God will say, okay, you've made it. Okay, you achieved some level of righteousness and, and you are saved, whatever their concept of salvation is. But Ephesians 2, 8, 9 and Abraham and Genesis 15, 6 that reminds us that it's not, it's not something you earn. Salvation is a gift you receive by believing in God's promises, believing in what he says about his son, Jesus Christ. That's what salvation is. And listen, this truth is humbling. Here he said in Ephesians 2, 9, so that no one may boast. You know, if we earned our way to heaven, we would be proud about it, wouldn't we? We think, hey, look at me. I did enough good things to make it to heaven. Aren't I great? I did more good things than that guy over there did. Loser, right? That's, what we, that's how we would think because, because we have that pride that's, that's in our lives. We would think, boy, I'm doing good. I figured it out. I'm righteous. I've, I've achieved what I need to achieve. But the Bible tells us that salvation is a gift that you receive by faith alone. World religions, cults, uh, people that believe that their good's going to outweigh their bad, just kind of, you know, good old boys, good old gals. They spell salvation D-O. Do something. Do enough. Try to achieve. Climb the ladder. Biblical Christianity spells salvation D-O-N-E. It's already been done by Jesus. We place our faith in what Jesus Christ has already done for us. And this is humbling, isn't it? Because none of us deserve salvation. None of us. There's none righteous, no, not one. If we got what we deserved, we'd all be in hell right now. And so no one 
that, that believes the biblical doctrine of justification by faith can brag. It takes away all bragging, all boasting. It's a, simply a gift that we have received from the gracious hand of God. This truth is humbling, and this truth magnifies God's glory. Magnifies God's glory. Because if you can't save yourself, if only a gift from God can save you, then who gets the glory for saving? Who? Look at me for a second. If you can't save yourself, the only way you can be saved is by receiving a gift from God, and God saves you, who gets the glory for saving you? God does. Isn't that simple? So that no one may boast. God gets all the glory for our salvation because he's the one that did it. He's the one that offered it. He's the one that provided it. He's the one that, that, that provided the sacrifice for our sin and, and drew us to himself and offered us this wonderful, wonderful gift. This truth magnifies God's glory. If you are saved tonight, it's not because you're good. It's because he's good, right? Not because, it's not because you're good, it's because he is glorious. And the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone magnifies the glory and the grace and the mercy and the love of our great God. Now you say, Wade, we know this is basic doctrine. We know that you're saved by faith and you're not saved by, by works. But listen to me, all through church history, the doctrine of, of Jesus plus something else has tried to infiltrate the church the idea that okay yeah you got jesus that's good but if you really want to be right with god you need to do these things as well and that's jesus plus and that is bad theology salvation is not jesus plus anything salvation is jesus christ alone faith in christ alone and there was a time when the the church of the day that was in power around the 16th century, had lost sight of justification by faith alone. The, the church that was in power in that day and time taught that, that, that you're saved by, by, by Jesus. Yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need to make sure you do these certain sacraments if you're really going to be right with God. In other words, Jesus is not enough. It's Jesus plus you doing things. That's works-based salvation. Clearly, clearly antithetical to what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 just said, right? And what it said about Abram in Genesis 15, 6. And so you had some folks that began to, to wonder about this teaching. And there was a certain man named Martin Luther. And he was a monk and he was desperate to be right with God. He was scared to death of God. Scared to death. Matter of fact, he was caught in a uh, a lightning storm before he became a monk, and he was out in the middle of uh, of, of the uh, uh, the outdoors, and he had nowhere to ri- uh, run to, nowhere to hide, no shelter. He falls on the ground. Lightning is hitting all around him. He says, "God, if you will get me out of this storm, I'll become a monk." And he thought that when he entered the monastery, God would accept him. But he still had this feeling: I'm rotten on the inside. Doesn't matter how much good stuff I do, something's not right. And God's holy, and I'm not right with him. No matter how many good things I try to achieve, I still got this issue on the inside. Well, eventually, this monk became a teacher. He began to teach college students from the Bible. He began to teach them from books like Psalms, and books like Romans, and books like Galatians. And he began to read things like, you're justified by faith alone. He started to say, hmm. It sounds different than what the church of the day is doing. 
And then the church of the day began to build St. Peter's Basilica. And to build this building, they wanted to raise some funds. It was going to be a massive project. And so the Pope sent out fundraisers. And Martin Luther was in Germany, and one of these fundraisers came riding into town. His name was Tetzel. And Tetzel came riding into town, and he stood up, and he said, Listen, I've got some good news for you. If you give money, a certain amount, to the building of St. Peter's Basilica, the Pope has signed a document saying that all of your loved ones can get out of purgatory and go straight to heaven. And so you had people who were who were of the masses, they were uneducated, they had no access to God's word, they just believed whatever the ministerial professionals told them, and so they thought, great, I can get grandma out of purgatory. I can get my uncle, my mom, my dad, my, my daughter's son, I can get him out of purgatory. And so they would give money to this. And, and Tetzel even had a phrase, he said, a coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. And people were giving money to get loved ones out of purgatory. You know what they were saying? If you give money, then your loved one will be saved by your giving of the money. And Martin Luther one day heard this, and he'd been studying Romans, and he'd been studying Galatians, he'd been studying Psalms, and he thought, that is not right. And he began to to write and to teach things that were antithetical to the church that was in power, and they condemned him, and that began a a movement called the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, where he said, we cannot abide by these teachings anymore. And and the, 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 the main issue that caused the Protestant Reformation was justification by faith, that this was all about. Are you saved by placing your faith in the finished work of Christ, or are you saved by doing certain things, plus believing in Jesus? And Luther said, I'm reading the Bible, and it says you're justified by faith alone. He began to teach that. People began to follow him. Churches began to start. The reformers grew. And, and that's when uh, Protestantism, uh, well, part of Protestantism started in that day and time. And so, so it's interesting in, hu- in, in church history that this was the issue. What we're talking about tonight, doctrine, this was the issue. People were being killed for believing in justification by faith and teaching justification by faith and being, being arrested and being martyred. And it was all about this issue. And so this is very important stuff because if someone believes, hear, hear me, if someone believes that their works save them, they're not saved. You hear that? So if we're teaching the wrong thing, we are leading people to eternity in hell, separated from God. That's serious business, isn't it? We've got to get this right. It's not what you do. It's what Christ has done. It's by believing in what Christ has done. And when you believe in what Christ has done, God gives you as a gift forgiveness Everlasting life, reconciliation to God, adoption, all of those things are found in Christ. But you got to place your faith in Christ, and faith alone in Christ saves. And so that, that's the, the first doctrine that the New Testament writers use Abram to illustrate. Faith alone saves. Everybody got that? Okay, let me, any questions before I go to the next point? Any questions on that? Because I've talked a long time, I know. But any, any questions on... Justification by faith. There are a lot of other verses we could go to, but any questions? 
Here's the second important truth about faith, going back to Genesis 15. Faith can be strengthened. Faith can be strengthened. Now turn back to Romans 4. Paul's using Abraham as an example of saving faith. And he says something here that's just fascinating to me. Romans chapter 4. Look what he says about Abraham's faith in verse 18. Paul writes, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Remember, Abraham was about 100 years old. Sarah was beyond uh, the conception years, and so he's thinking this doesn't, doesn't add up biologically, but God said it. So in hope against hope, it says he believed. And it says there, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. <laughs> Isn't that an encouraging phrase? As good as dead. Since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now listen to me. It's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's not that people that have strong faith are saved and people that have weak faith are not saved. What saves you is what Jesus Christ has done for you, right? So faith, trust in Jesus is what saves you. But here's the neat thing. When you become a follower of Christ, your trust in those promises can grow. Your hope that comes from those promises can get stronger and stronger and stronger. You can become more and more, I need to use this word, more and more assured in your your faith. Your faith can get stronger, all right? Because Abrams did. It said it grew strong. It got stronger as he uh, trusted in the promises of God. So here's the question. How can our faith be made stronger? How can we... How can we cling to the promises of God, the saving promises of God, to a greater degree than we are there? How can, how can we get stronger in our faith? Well, let me give you some thoughts here. Our faith can be made stronger, first of all, by God's Word. Turn back to Genesis with me. Genesis 15, I want to show you this. Remember, Abraham is wavering. I don't have a son. I don't have any land, or I don't know, uh, there are people living here, how how am I going to possess the land? I'm surrounded by enemies. So he's wavering. So what does God do in the midst of his wavering? Look what it says in Genesis 15, verse 3. Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. It says, Behold, verse 4, The word of the Lord came to him. So what happened? God spoke, right? And God's word helped Abram to grow stronger in his faith. And I I would submit to you tonight that if you want stronger faith, it's going to have to be connected to a a regular, consistent intake of the Word of God. The, uh, the, the more you get into the Word and the Word gets into you, the stronger your faith will grow. And, and, and I would just tell you, it, it's just not going to grow 
if you do not have regular, consistent intake of the Word of God. God spoke to him, and guess what? God has spoken to us. It's called the Bible, 66 books, Genesis through Revelation. And this Bible is truth with no mixture of error. It is infallible. It is the God-breathed truth. And, and we, as we study it, read it, memorize it, meditate on it, hear it taught, hear it preached, as we get into the Word of God, our faith will grow stronger. How many of you would say, I want stronger faith? Raise your hand. How many of you have read your Bibles this week? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise it. Don't. Now, if you say you want a stronger faith, but you haven't read your Bible this week, it, there's a disconnect, you see? You're just not going to get there. And so, we need to cling to the Word of God, because God's Word makes our faith stronger. The Lord said, the Word of the Lord came to, to Abram, and it helped him what God said to him. Also, symbols can make our faith stronger. Symbols. Look what it says in verse 5. Behold, the Word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, Eliezer, but your very own son shall be your heir. He reminds him of that truth. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. In other words, Abram, can you count the stars? Answer, of course, is no. Have you ever tried to count the stars? Have you ever just tried just to get started? Doesn't last very long, right? You can't count the stars. There, there are billions upon billions. You, you, you can't even see them all, so you can't count them all. And the point is this, just like you can't number the stars, you won't be able to number your offspring. That's how mighty of a nation I'm going to build through your descendants. Now, question. Do you think Abram ever thought of the stars the same way? I believe that every time Abram walked outside and saw those stars, he connected those stars to the promise of God. He was reminded that God was going to come through. God was going to give him a son, and God was going to build a great nation. I don't believe that Abram ever saw the stars the same again. Those stars were symbolic. They were, they were reminders of God's promises, and they helped him, I believe, grow strong in his faith. God gave him the symbol to strengthen him. Now, here's the question. Does God still do that today? Does God still give us symbols, things to, to remind us of his promises? Does he give us things that remind us of, of who he is and what he's done so that we can keep our faith uh, growing and getting stronger and stronger? And the answer is yes. God has given his church two awesome symbols, two awesome reminders of his promises. One is called baptism. Baptism. You remember when Jesus said, you need to go and make disciples, great commission. You, here's what you do. You, you, you baptize them and then you teach them to follow me. After they've become a follower of Christ, you baptize them as a symbol of their salvation. Then you teach them to walk with me. But Jesus was very clear. When someone becomes my follower, they are to be baptized. When you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what happened. When people became followers of Christ, they were baptized, put in water, brought out of the water. And Romans 6 reminds us that, that this, this symbol of baptism is a reminder of the gospel. 
Just like Jesus died on the cross and was buried and rose from the grave, when we baptize somebody, we are reminded of the reality that when you place your faith in Christ, the old you dies, and Romans 6 says you are raised to walk in newness of life. So every time you see a baptism, you're reminded of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, and you're reminded of the transforming power of the gospel every time. Isn't that a beautiful symbol? And that, listen, nothing gets me excited like just seeing folks just baptized. It's awesome. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a symbolic step of obedience that comes after your conversion, which is by faith in Christ alone. But it is an an important, beautiful step of obedience that is a, a, a way for you to say to the watching world, I am a follower of Christ. You're, you're marking it out. I am unashamed, a follower of Jesus. And so baptism is this visual reminder of the gospel. Now, we have some folks visiting with us tonight or folks haven't been here very long. You say, okay, Mr. Preacher Man, where's your baptistry? If it's that big of a deal, where's the, where's the baptistry? Well, just to alleviate your concerns, we have a portable one. We roll it out. We bring in a, a water hose and fill it up with hot water most of the time. And we baptize folks. We've baptized outside. We baptize right in here at the front. So we, 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 got, we got it covered, all right? But it's a beautiful, beautiful picture. It's not just some kind of church step you go through. It is, it is a, a reminder, a visual reminder of the good news of Jesus Christ, what he's done and what he does in us when we are saved. I remember... I was saved when I was nine years old. I was asking my parents some spiritual questions, and they told my pastor, and Pastor F.T. Rogers came to, to my house, and we sat down at my dining room table, and he walked me through the Romans Road, and I saw my need for a Savior. I mean, the Lord gripped my heart. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I needed Jesus. And there at my dining room table, I, I, I prayed, and asked Jesus to come to my life and save me. And I was saved, and that next Sunday, I came to the front of the church and, and, and professed everyone, I, I'm, I'm a Christian now. And that Sunday night, I came back to church and I got baptized. And I remember it like it was yesterday. A symbol, a symbolic step of obedience that communicates 